Uh, this is the last Sunday of Advent. It's Christmas Eve, right? Um, a lot of you are in some form of red or holiday garb uh, of some form. Uh, so to, this is our normal Sunday morning worship service, though. Like, this is not our Christmas Eve service. That's later tonight. Uh, you can all come back for that. We've got lessons and carols. Uh, the team has worked really hard on that. We'd love to have you come out for that t- tonight at 7 o'clock. Uh, but we've been ordering our lives for the last four weeks around that hymn we sang earlier, Thou Who Is Rich Beyond All Splendor. And what we've been doing is trying to order our lives around the truths of the incarnation, which is the way Christians talk about God becoming human in Jesus, uh, and, and to look at how that hymn kind of fleshes that out. And, haha, unintended pun. How, how, the, how that that uh, hymn fleshes that out. This week we come to the last of these messages and because when we talk about Advent, we talk about the coming of Jesus. What we're actually talking about is the coming of God. God coming to us. Right? God taking on flesh. God entering into His creation. God affirming His creation. God seeking its redemption. And that's why this morning... We end our series looking at the one who was God, all for love's sake, becoming man. So if you have your place in Philippians 2, if you'd stand in honor of God's word. This is a very familiar passage for many of us. Some of us, maybe it's the first time we've heard it, but for many in this room, it's a very familiar passage. And sometimes you hear me say this, but I want to reiterate it. Familiarity is an enemy oftentimes, especially when it comes to scripture. Because we can hear it and think that we already understand it. And we close ourselves off to God speaking through it. So this morning, as best you can, I would encourage you to hear it as if you were hearing it for the first time. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. This is God's Word. Speaking of Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, we we are in a season where it is easy to become distracted by sentimentality and excitement about gifts and uh, stress about family. (laughs) And so this morning we need you to come and we need you to speak to us. Open our hearts and speak your grace and peace to us, whether it's for the first time or for the first time this morning, because we all need it. And so we, we pray that you would do that by your spirit. Would you, would you come and uh, do what only you can do? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. is going to get on my nerves. <laughs> so, hey, um, 
here, here's the thing. Before we get to our passage this week, what I want to do is just kind of briefly glance over our shoulders to see what it is that we've come from, right? Because this is our fourth week in this. Uh, and we've been looking at Jesus from a multiple different angles. The first week of Advent, we looked at Jesus as the one who was powerful, becoming weak, right? He was omnipotent, meaning he had all power. There's a lot of omnis associated with God. Omnipotent means having all potency, all, all ability. There's... Um, <clears throat> omnipresence, meaning he's everywhere, but in that particular one, that he was omnipotent and he became vulnerable for our sake. Then two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus who was rich, meaning he existed in perfect fullness and that he came to our poverty, our neediness, and took that on so that we might become rich. Both of those sermons had a strong doing component to it. You remember that? We talked about how it, what it means to step down from our places of power into vulnerability for the sake of others. We talked about what it means to empty ourselves, to, to give of ourselves the way Paul calls us to in light of Jesus, to give for the sake of others, of our time, our talents, and especially our resources. Then last week we looked at Jesus as the one who was loved fully and perfectly from all eternity, coming and becoming abandoned For us, so that we who were abandoned might be brought into the family of God. And that sermon wasn't so much about uh, doing as it was about being, right? Because for many of us, it's really hard to to, to see ourselves as beloved of God. Tolerated, yes, but beloved, delighted in, enjoyed of God. In every case, we've seen that for the glory of God and the salvation of humanity, God the Son entered into a mission that brought Him into a manger. And He gave everything to see it succeed. And so what we're going to see today is that Jesus actually reshapes not just our understanding of Christmas from all that sentiment that we've been kind of enculturated with, but He actually reshapes our vision of who and what God is like. So we're going to look at that in three ways this morning. We're going to look at a story of forms and death, a story of names and glory, and then finally the story of the cradle, the cross, and the grave. And as always, there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful, okay? So let's get started. Now, Philippians. Many of you will know that this was a letter written by an early Christian leader by the name of Paul, right? Uh, he, He was kind of a church planter. He planted churches all throughout the Mediterranean, including here in Philippi. What you may not know is that this passage... The one that I just read is most probably a song. You're like, eh, I don't know, man. That, does, that does not, doesn't sing real well. It, well, maybe not in English. Probably in Greek's a little better, right? Um, so Paul, it's either a song that Paul wrote himself, which I think is probably more likely, or one that he picked up, uh, and, and he prints it here, he puts it here as a way of teaching us something and trying to get us to do something. We're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, but, but I just want to highlight one thing before we get to the text itself. What we have here is what in many, many people would call a controlling narrative. Okay? What I mean by that is it is a particular way of understanding that Paul is communicating to say, this is what should now control how we understand what it means to be Christian, what, it, what God is like, everything. All of, all of Paul's understandings throughout all of his letters can kind of be framed by this song. 
So first, let's look at the story of forms and death by seeing Jesus in the form of God. Look down at verse 6. Paul begins with who? Although in the form of God. So all of this song is, be, is based on a contrast. Okay? If you, don't, if you don't start with that, you're not going to get the whole rest of it. It's, it's formed on a contrast. Um, so let me be clear of this. The reason why he forms it on a contrast is because you and I, by our nature, have a bad version of God. We have a flawed understanding of God, by our nature. It's not even something that we kind of were necessarily taught, though we teach one another this and reinforce it. Uh, but it's that, by nature, uh, Paul can assume our, we have a wrong expectation of what it means to be God. Now, I hope that's not offensive. It may be, but stay with me if it is, because I think it'll make sense in a second. Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God. Now, uh, that word form is difficult to translate. When you and I think of form, we think of a form of something. We generally think something that looks like something else but really isn't. Right? So like 80s kids, when the Wonder Twins would activate their powers and take the form of water. Thank you. Okay, I get one shout out. We take the form of water. They never stopped being the Wonder Twins. Um, so... This word, though, doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean taking, like, looking like something when you're not. The word actually in the original means that which characterizes a thing. So what Paul is saying is that what truly characterized Jesus is Godhood. He had a status of God, but, Paul says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay? So the first problem was with the word form. The next one is with the word grasped. Because when I say grasped or grabbed or something like that, you automatically think, more than likely, of going and snatching something that's not yours, right? Uh, you know, it's one of the things we tell our kids. Don't go grasping things. Well, we don't say grasping. We do say grabbing, but it's, it's the same idea. Um, we, we think of snatching or stealing or something like that. Well, that's actually not it. The best way, but the most cumbersome way, and which is why our Bibles don't do it, the best way to translate this is to think of using uh, your privileges for your sake. Utilizing the privileges of something that you already possess for your own benefit. So in other words, what Paul is trying to get at is that Jesus, although Jesus was by his very nature, what truly characterized him was Godhood, he did not see his Godhood as something to use for himself. You with me? He didn't come to exploit that equality. All right, so what? Well, listen close, because we can miss this if we're not careful. If you're hearing this as someone who is familiar with the Old Testament, as would everybody that Paul originally wrote to, your mind would have immediately gone back to another dude who was made in God's image, but did seek to use or try to grasp something that wasn't his. Right, Because the story of the Bible is that uh, God created all things. And then he created humanity in his image to rule over all things. We were made to be like him. But we turned from him and chose to seek equality with him. Right, The original lie, God doesn't love you. Um, God's not out for your good. That he's actually holding you back. If you eat this fruit, you could actually be like God. The silliest thing that we've ever heard. And yet we all believe that to some degree. Paul is setting up a contrast here between Jesus and Adam. 
We, who are in his image, seek to grasp equality and become God. So Jesus refuses to grasp his own equality to become human. And that brings us into the form of the slave. Look down at verses 7 to 8. Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Or, better, would be slave. Okay? Uh, and here's, here's why that's better. Um, most of your Bibles are going to say servant. Uh, that's because they're written in English and sold to Americans. And in America, we don't like the word slave. Right? We have, just like in English, you have two different words. You have servant and slave. One's nice and one's not. They do so in Greek as well. Guess what word this one is? It's the not nice one. It's the not nice one. And the reason for that is because of the implications it will make for us. That's why Paul uses it. So what does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, it doesn't mean that Jesus ceased to be God. Now, uh, some, some versions of Christianity, some, some folks who would like to call themselves Christian kind of say that, that somehow Jesus left behind his godhood uh, when he took on flesh. Um, but this isn't like, to use another superhero geek out, this isn't like the second Christopher Reeve Superman movie where Superman climbs in the chamber and gets rid of his powers, right? He, he, where he somehow humbles himself and now he's human. Like, a lot of this is a mystery, But Paul seems to say that what the emptying is, is the taking the form of a slave. In other words, it was becoming human. God is the only creature in the universe who can add something to himself, and in adding something to himself actually subtracts. In adding humanity to himself, he actually subtracted. He emptied. So what's, again, what's going on here is a contrast. Jesus, though being God, didn't exploit his godhood but self-emptied. He took the form of a slave. He humbled himself. Okay? You with me? But that's not all. Paul says that the humbling was also in his becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Okay? And to get the force of the contrast, we have to remember, again, the story that Paul is referencing. So, we turn from God when we betrayed him and turned away from him. That brought guilt. So, the, the, the Bible tells us that that brings death, but not just a physical death. A spiritual death, uh, something that the, the New Testament, that Jesus would call hell, right? We didn't want to be dependent on God. He couldn't be trusted. We wanted to become like him. And so now we are, uh, by nature, in a state of, of death. The Bible, uh, eventually, when, when we lead that out to its logical conclusion, reaches hell. It is a bearing of the weight of our betrayal of God forever. Now, here's why that matters. Jesus became obedient unto death. That should be like a, what, why? Like, if death is a consequence of that disobedience, how do you become obedient unto death? Well, friends, that's why Jesus came. That's why he humbled himself. That's why he didn't exploit his status. He came to die in the place of betrayers like us. And so, some of you may be here today, and and you're kind of cool with some of the ideas of Christianity. You really like Jesus preaching on the mountain, like, uh, you know, blessed are the meek, and you're like, yeah, that's great, I love that. But this idea of an angry God, I don't know about that. And my guess is that if that's true, you probably have more Dante in your head than the Bible. Uh, Because, uh, you know, medieval literature and art kind of framed a picture for us of, of the judgment of God. Uh, which, which is not so much the Bible as it is fear-mongering. Because the Bible doesn't present us Dante's God. 
with all of his levels of hell. The Bible doesn't present us with a God who is insecure and flippant with judgment. It presents us a God who wants to be reconciled to those that have betrayed him. So here's where the cross fits into that. Some of you have heard me say this before, but I think it bears repeating so we can understand it, not just for how it impacts our relationship with God, but how it impacts our relationship with others. Forgiveness is not simply pretending something didn't happen. Right? That's what we tend to think. That's why we throw out lines like forgive and forget. What that generally means for us is we're just going to pretend this didn't happen. That is not forgiveness. That is denial. Okay? Denial is different than forgiveness. Because not only does it tell lies about something that happened, it denies the impact of the other. If someone wounds me, especially someone I love, wounds me and I pretend that didn't happen, what I tell them is, you don't really matter to me. Right? Because if the guy off the street comes in, flips me off, and then walks out, I go, who are you? I don't care. If my kids do that, it's a bigger deal. Right? They impact me. Denial doesn't just deny what happened, it denies impact. But that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is always the betrayed bearing the offense for the betrayer. It always is. Whether we're talking about with God or with us. So for God to make things right, our betrayal had to be dealt with. And that's why Jesus came. That's the whole point of Christmas. Like I've said a bunch of times during the series, you can't separate Christmas from the cross. God became human so that God could bear the weight of our betrayal of him. He came for that forgiveness. In Jesus, God is bearing God's judgment. God himself, not some representative, is bearing our offense. Jesus, though God, didn't exploit his godhood, but instead humbled himself and died for our sake. Paul continues with the story of names and glory, first with giving a name. Look down at verse 9. Paul says, Therefore God raised him up to the highest position, gave him a name that's above every name. Now, now some of you may be thinking, especially if you're not familiar with Christianity, this is really confusing. Rick, you just said Jesus is God, but now God's exalting Jesus. Like, how does this all work? Well, the, is, is Jesus God or not? Uh, is he God or is he somebody else? Uh, Like I've said this before in this series, but the the Christian view of God is that God is absolute, he is personal, and he is complex, right? Absolute means he's all-powerful, personal means he can be known. Maybe not fully, but truly, right? Not comprehensively, but truly. And he's complex, meaning that he exists in three persons with one substance. So God the Son became human in the person of Jesus, and, and God raised him up. And so what Paul is referencing here uh, is, is that the death of Jesus was not the end of Jesus' story. Because you see, if Jesus simply died like everybody else, then frankly, what we have in the story of Jesus is just a tragedy. Like some of y'all's tragedies. Which isn't to say it's not important. You certainly don't change the world by it. And if if Jesus died and just stayed dead, then frankly, Christianity means nothing. It's pointless. So maybe you're here this morning and you consider yourself a Christian, but things like the resurrection. You're like, Rick, I don't know, man. That dead dudes don't get up. I agree with you. That's why it was such a big deal. Right? They knew that too. 
Without the resurrection, friends, there is no Christianity. Paul said God exalted Jesus. He raised him from the dead and seated him as king of the world. King of the universe. Like, Jesus is king. He's not a guru to simply learn some wisdom from. Nor is he simply a martyr to emulate. He is king. He is what we should have been. The one through whom God's rule of his creation will go forward. And so because he humbled himself, Paul says, God exalted him. And then he continues with the source of glory. Look down at verses 10 and 11. So God exalts him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in all of creation. uh, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All right. Now stop there. This is easy to miss. I want to make this clear. In the span of like four verses, Paul has just covered all of Christianity, or at least the main controlling story of Christianity, right? He begins with eternity past. He's in the form of God. He alludes to the creation account, right? Equality, exploitation, that's all Adam. He moves on to the incarnation, Jesus taking the form of a slave. Then to Jesus' sacrificial death, his death on a cross. Then the resurrection and ascension, which is another way to say Jesus being enthroned. That's the highly exalted. And now he finishes with the basis of all Christian hope. A baby in a manger is a great thing. But the source of Christian hope is Jesus coming again to fully and finally bring the kingdom. That's what it means when he says everyone confessing and bowing. Okay? This is important, so check in if you checked out. The season of Advent, we've said this multiple times over the course of this series, the season of Advent is not fundamentally to look back. We use that. Looking back is a convenient way for us to look forward. We light these candles in a way to say each week we light another one thinking we are one week closer to the time when Jesus will return to make all things right. Advent is to be longing for the coming of Jesus to make the world right again. And we do that by entering into the longing of those who waited his first coming. In other words, Advent is actually about these two verses. Friends, Christians believe that there will come a day when all the debate over whether Jesus was real whether he was the only way, whether exclusive religious claims are moral, that all of those things will come to an end. And it will come to an end because Jesus is going to show up and make things right. He's going to finally bring a world that's been out of joint back into joint. He's going to make things like the slave trade here in the valley and all over the world. Things like the exploitation, objectification, and harassment of women and girls. Things like the demeaning of people based on their skin color and the wicked ideology we saw evidenced in August in Charlottesville. He will bring them all to an end and set everything to rights. And he will do so by judging evil and by declaring that those of us who have been joined to him have been judged in him and make all things new. And this, Paul says, is all to the glory of God the Father. 
Why is that? See, this is the kicker. It's also the center of the Christian faith. Why is it all to God's glory? It's all to his glory because he's the one who did it all. That is what grace means. All that any of us, any of us, even the best of us, all that we actually deserve, according to the Bible, is God's judgment. But God, out of grace, acts to rescue us. He humbles himself. He refuses to exploit his own status, but instead uses his status to serve. Ultimately, by dying in our place so that we might be raised up with him. And that is not given as an accomplishment to achieve. It's given as a gift to receive. That is Christianity. God saves sinners like me, like you. Now, I want to bring this home this morning in two ways. First, I want to look at a contrast of forms. See, because what makes this passage so powerful... Uh, what, what makes this so amazing, it, it's, it's so great that the passage that Kathy read was from Colossians, and it was talking about Jesus as the, the firstborn of all creation, and the one through whom, by whom, and for whom all things were made. Because then we have that contrasted with humility, and service, and sacrifice. What is so powerful about this passage that is so unbelievable Because the idea of God not using his godhood for his own benefit, but instead using it to serve others is so outrageous. Because we would never do that. Right? You see, that's why this whole passage culminates in the death of Jesus. Because the Bible says that our problem is not simply behavior. If it was, we could just fix it. Our problem is not behavior. It's an issue of the heart. It's why this is so unreal to us, because we always look out for number one. And if our problem is more than behavior, then we don't just need reform, right? Our problem goes deeper than that. Since Adam, ever since then, we constantly use our status for our own benefit. We even seek a status that wasn't ours to begin with. Now, some of you are probably thinking, Rick, I serve people all the time. And I'm sure you do. Like, I don't, I don't want to argue that at all. I'm sure you do. My question would be, why? Hmm. Because, see, the issue is not behavior, it's the heart. So what, from, from what is that service springing? I ask that because if we're serving others to appease our feelings of guilt, right, whether that's before God or simply because we were born in a particular home with a certain socioeconomic level, in a certain place. Or if we serve to give ourselves a respectable name, or if we serve because we feel sorry for those people over there, then in reality, we are serving them to serve us. We serve them as a tool to alleviate our guilt a tool to make us right, a tool to increase our own feelings of superiority. Paul says that Jesus didn't serve for himself. He emptied himself to the point of costing his life. 
Do you see, even our service is broken before God. We don't need a reformation. We need a recreation. This is why our natural understanding of God is so messed up, because the problem doesn't come from up here, it comes from down here. Our God is not an exaggerated expression of us. He is one who so loves others that he is willing to completely give himself so that we might flourish. That is what Christmas is about. God serving those who hated him. God coming to rescue and die for those who were his enemies so that he might make his enemies his children. And that brings us one last time to talk about the Christmas spirit. Right? That's what we've been kind of harping on this whole season. What is it that the Christmas spirit is? If this is what Christmas is about then what will it mean to enter into the Christmas spirit this season? Only a couple more days left, right? (laughs) Right. Well, first off, first off, it will mean following the pattern. Paul writes this whole song because what he wants to say is, hey, Philippians, or even better, hey, Holy Cross, go act like this. Go do this. Be like this. Have this mind. Literally the verse before. Have this mind in yourselves. This attitude. This way of being. Which we see also in Jesus. But listen. Because this is going to be a little hard to hear. The pattern that Paul gives us. For how to be in the world as Christians. Is incarnation. Death. And then resurrection. And this is hard because most of us became Christians buying in to that false bill of sale that as soon as we bring Jesus into our hearts, that then we somehow get to live the victorious Christian life and not look anything like our Savior. Like, it's as if we went, well, Jesus did all that, so I get all the goodies. And yes, you do, when you image Him. That was not true for Jesus. It wasn't true for our Lord. And as Jesus said, for those of us who like the Gospels, Jesus said, a servant, that would be you and me, is not above his master. If they hated me, they will hate you. So some of us are shocked at that. Some of us, though, are experiencing a death right now. Right? Maybe it's physical suffering. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's um, maybe it's just disappointment. Right? Maybe you were part of the congregation that we closed down last week, and you're struggling with it. It feels like a death. And it is. Maybe you're going through some personal betrayals. And so you're going through a death and you're wondering, why is this happening? Doesn't God love me? Like, how do these things happen? And so, maybe in the midst of all of that, in the mall of the wondering, you start shaming yourself. There must be something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not a good enough Christian. Or or you start blame-shifting Listen to me. Paul says that pattern is the norm for Christian life. 
That is not, that's why, that's why you'll hear another place in the Bible, don't, don't think it's strange when you face trials of various kinds. Don't think it's strange. This is normal. We incarnate into the lives of others. We seek to serve. Often we go through death. And then God exalts. You cannot be exalted without the humbling. You cannot have a resurrection without a death. So if you're going through a death this morning, this is not strange. And Jesus is not absent from you. He set the pattern which means as you go through it, this is, what, this is what Psalm 23 is about, right? Psalm 23, you're like, what? Lo, I walk through the valley of the... Of right, the shadow of death. I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Because as we go through that valley, Jesus paved the way. He made the rough places plain for us as we walk there, and we follow him in it, and he meets us there and brings us out. What you are going through isn't strange. It hurts. It is awful. But in it, when we go through it, you and I have unique fellowship with Jesus. But here's the other side of it. And I said I was going to shorten things, but I'm not. So sorry. Uh, Paul gives this pattern. Not only as the norm to expect, but as something to actively seek. You see, we have a paradigm. We have an understanding of what it looks like for a group of people to seek their own Good, right? To look out for their tribe, their family, their, their, uh, their people. Like, we, we get that. The call of Jesus is to do that kind of thing. To seek the flourishing of everyone. So what would it look like, Holy Cross, to serve our city, our neighborhood, our workplace, maybe even our families? Instead of uh, imposing our will on them, exercising our rights, what would it look like to lay them down instead? I'm not talking about a program. I'm not talking about scheduled time. (laughs) I'm talking about a lifestyle in which we give our time, our talent, especially even our treasure, so that others might flourish physically, emotionally, socially, and especially spiritually. I don't have a, we don't have time to work out the specifics of that. But I can tell you where it's going to begin. Where it's going to begin is where it began with Jesus. Humbling yourself. Listening to others. And actually believing that all we really have to offer another. I know this is hard for us. It, it is. Mm, The only thing we have to offer another is the grace of God in Jesus. Some of you are thinking like, but Rick, a lot of those folks aren't Christians. I know, most of them. They don't even like us. You're right. Some have even personally wounded me. I know. But we have been shown grace so that we can show grace. And some of you are thinking, like, Rick, you're talking about service. Didn't you just say our service is broken? Yes, our our service is broken. Here's where the gospel comes into play. You will never be truly free to humble yourself and serve another unless you believe that there is someone who humbled himself to serve you. You, You'll never be free to empty yourself unless you believe that you've been filled 
by another. Because if you don't, you will feverishly seek to fill yourself. Feverishly seek to serve yourself. And you will simply use others and God for that purpose. But if you believe that you can be raised up and filled freely out of pure grace, fully through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then you will be free to give yourself for the flourishing of others. Because yours is secured. There's nothing more you have to do. And that, friends, is what Christmas is actually about. Our God who was wronged, giving himself for the sake of those who wronged him, So that he might rescue us from a judgment of our own making. And doing so by loving, by serving, and by humbling himself, even to death on a cross. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we celebrate tonight, the rest of today, and especially tomorrow, the coming of our Savior... I pray that you would help us keep one eye always on God becoming flesh so that through him we might be taken up into the life of God. For there is no grace greater, nothing so amazing. Come and see what God has done. We praise you for that and ask that as we, as we respond in our worship, that you would let us do so with gusto because of what you have done in us and through us. And for those here this morning, Lord, who have not yet uh, seen that grace as something to embrace, I pray that you would move even now. That you would use today to let the pieces click and life to begin. We do it all for your glory, Lord, because you have done it all. And so we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.